To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily Bloomberg iHeart podcast. And I'm Stacey Marie Ishmel, Managing Editor of Crypto for Bloomberg News. It's Friday, September 23rd. This September marks the one-year anniversary of China declaring the crypto transactions were effectively illegal. At the time, the decision triggered sharp declines in crypto markets, even though it wasn't entirely unexpected news. Because it wasn't the first time that China had sought to crack down on crypto. That's been happening in one form or another since at least 2013. Still, the 2021 declaration prompted some pretty swift and significant changes. Among the biggest of these was the effect on Bitcoin miners, who left China in droves, Many of them set up shop in places like Texas in the U.S. To better understand the state of crypto in China, we'll talk to Bloomberg reporters Yuichi Yang. The overall takeaway is China is becoming less relevant in the global crypto community. And David Pan. The crypto miners were definitely scrambling to get their mining machines out of China. And we'll hear from Winston Ma. You know, China's uh, crypto regulation is very comprehensive and essentially it prohibits crypto mining, trading and transactions. A venture capitalist at CloudTree Ventures and a law professor at New York University Law School. David, Yuichi, it is always a pleasure to have you in the studio. Around this time last year, China decided that for real, actually, officially, they were going to declare all forms of crypto transactions to be illicit. Chinese regulators, as you may know, have been talking tough for months, but on Friday, they released a missive that removed all doubt. It wasn't just the central bank, it was also nine regulatory agencies, and they specifically called out offshore exchanges targeting Chinese users, banning them from hiring locally for roles that range Now, this was not the first time that China had started cracking down on crypto. It wasn't even the second time. But it did seem to be the most significant, not least because that ban came with threats of like criminal penalties and other things that didn't really sound fun at all. And so, David, I'd love to start with you on in the days that followed that declaration, what happened to the crypto miners and why were so many crypto miners in China in the first place? The crypto miners were definitely scrambling to get their mining machines out of China because some of these local governments, uh, by enforcing the law, essentially they were literally confiscating the the mining rigs from all of these mining farms. Mm -hmm. So they were rushing to like ports like in Shenzhen, in South China, you know, they, they were trying to find any possible way to 
resell their used machines to other parts of the world, you know, like the US or even Central Asia, Eastern Europe, and then anywhere you can possibly think of. And were they selling the machines? Were they trying to get those machines to those places so they could use them again? Like what was happening? I'm a miner in China. This declaration comes down. What do I do next? First, they had to unplug millions of mining machines. So that was the thing they had to do because the national grid in, in China, the regulators were able to monitor the, mm-hmm. the electricity usage of the Bitcoin mining farm, especially the large scale, large scale Bitcoin mining farms, because it's really easy to spot them on the grid. <laughs> So they had to close down all of these farms first. Otherwise, they're going to be put into jail, according to this new declaration. So they did that. And then they started thinking about how they can transfer their mining operations from China to places like Texas, Russia, you know, all of these other places. UHE, I'd love to get your perspective on what it meant for flows, transaction volumes, you know, in addition to China having been a, a mining hub, they were arguably for a while like the center of crypto transactions. In the corners of the markets that you cover, what were some of the effects of this ban? So we know that historically there's a, like you said, there's a large community of Chinese speaking crypto founders, investors, users. And after the ban in China and the crackdown in China on crypto, volumes had dipped and China fell out of the top 10 ranking of global crypto adoption index by Chain Analysis. But then this year, Chain Analysis said that uh, China has re-entered to the top 10 after placing as the number 13th in 2021. And then this index showed that either the rules in China are not strictly enforced or there are just people who are still able to circumvent the rule using VPN and still participate in these crypto services. So I think when we talk to Chinese crypto founders and investors, the overall takeaway is China is becoming less relevant in the global crypto community, but the Chinese diaspora are not. They're still very active, a lot of them. There are still a lot of those folks who did move. They did leave the country. Are you hearing from any of them that there may be plans to, you know, to your point about whether the rules are being less enforced or people are just getting, you know, clever. Are they looking at setting up again in China? Or is this, do you feel like we're kind of at a stage where it's like, nope, we're here. This is the plan. This is how we're moving forward. So I think there are two groups of people making two totally different types of choices. Even though China cracked down on crypto, blockchain technology is still encouraged Mm -hmm. in China. And there are efforts to find more use cases in blockchain in China. NFT as a digital collectible is also allowed, even though you can't really trade them on the secondary market and therefore make it just fundamentally very different from the NFT in the rest of the world. But there are companies and even the state media, Xinhua, they issued NFT. So there are efforts like that that are still existing in China. So there's one group of people who say that I want to stay in China Mm -hmm. and I want to bet on this parallel version Mm -hmm. of Web3 in China that's kind of cut off from the rest of the world and then has its own rule. The blockchains are usually permissioned. And then the second group will be the ones that we talked about that are moving out of China. They are still active in the global crypto community, but they are operating from 
Singapore, Dubai, the U.S., um, Europe and other places. David, I want to go back to you. You know, a lot of your reporting has been around the fact that the folks running these companies got out of China, got their equipment out of China or mostly got their equipment out of China and went to Lubbock or, you know, somewhere else in Texas or went to Kazakhstan and other places and ran into some unexpected challenges. What were some of those challenges? I think they're still facing a lot of challenges as of now. One of the biggest ones it will be the connections. Like, you know, they don't have the connections to begin with. For example, in China, they didn't have to purchase power, like in a formal, like, agreement with the legal recourse. But like in Texas, they have to find brokers, they have to find suppliers and big established legacy energy companies to work with. Mm -hmm. So they have to find those kind of partners locally in Texas. They didn't have that kind of relationships. So that's a very big disadvantage compared to the local miners, you know, such as Riot and Marathon, all of these U.S.-based mining companies. You know, it strikes me as we're having this conversation that it's so similar to what folks who tried to set up like manufacturing in Michigan or these other intersections where there were clearly like incumbent U.S. companies that had been doing things and were running into differences in language, differences in, you know, even just like technology, the ways of doing things. Are any of those kinds of elements also affecting the ability of Chinese miners to unseat the local incumbents, as it were? Exactly. I think that is a really big problem. I think there was a documentary about like the Chinese factory. It was like a culture shock between the Chinese companies and the local employees. That kind of scenario is exactly playing out among the Chinese mining companies as well. For example, one big mining company CEO told me like when they went to like Midwestern states like Ohio and when they set up the shop there and they realized that the American workers take way too many vacation days, whereas all of their Chinese colleagues were working around the clock and then try to, you know, finish the construction, try to build out infrastructure. So for them, I think uh, it was definitely something they hadn't anticipated Mm -hmm. when they decided to move to the U.S., like in the middle of the U.S. (laughs) I can't help but laugh at the idea that Americans have a lot of vacation days because having moved here from London, where it's just like all vacation days all the time, I'm frankly stunned. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you learn you learn something new every single day. I feel like this is one of the more interesting kind of useful and nuanced episodes that we've been able to have on the show so far so thank you both for taking the time i really appreciate it thank you thank you you can find more of their reporting on the bloomberg terminal on bloomberg.com and on twitter uhe is at uhe underscore yang that's y-u-e-q-i underscore y-a-n-g and david is david underscore pan one that's d-a-v-i-d P-A-N underscore one. Up next, more on the consequences of China's approach to crypto with Winston Ma of CloudTree Ventures.
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Winston, what a delight to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Well, let's talk about two of your books, the one that you just published about blockchain and Web3 and an earlier one with the kind of the provocative title of the digital war about the sort of the standoff, as it were, between the Chinese approach to tech and the U.S. approach to tech. How are you seeing this all play out in the universe of blockchain and Web3? Great question. To me, you know, the, the evolution of the titles actually represents the evolution of China's tech development, as well as the corresponding interaction with the U.S. You know, the, the book, The Digital War, uh, was a sequel to my earlier book, 2016 book, China's Mobile Economy. And as that title suggested, right, uh, 2016 was a year uh, of China's mobile revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the so the focus at that time was all about smartphone, mobile payment, and mobile e-commerce. But from there, you know, China uh, started to shift its focus from internet development into hard technologies such as AI, blockchain, cloud computing, data centers, etc. You know that that's why 2021 my book had the title, The Digital War, how China's tech power shapes the future of AI, blockchain, and the cyberspace. Now, relating to the blockchain and Web3 topics, so you could say that blockchain and Web3 is a new frontier of the U.S. and China tech competition. Now, on your earlier book, The Digital War, you know, one of the things you had on the cover was the logo for TikTok. Yes, that's right. Which is owned by ByteDance and other than being probably the most popular app in the world, is at the center of an escalating political battle, you know, with both Republican and Democrat officials in the United States sort of, you know, making loud noises around whether it's appropriate for TikTok to be owned by a Chinese company. There are no existing Chinese-owned tech companies with a kind of a metaverse focus or DeFi focus and NFT focus that are as big in the U.S. as TikTok is. But do you see a world in which there is like sort of a crypto TikTok equivalent coming out of China? Not in the uh, near term. Because at this time, you know, China's uh, crypto regulation is very comprehensive and essentially it prohibits crypto mining, trading and transactions. So in other words, you know, in China, there's a broad ban on crypto usage in the financial systems uh, uh, as well as in daily transactions. So therefore, the metaverse development in China is going through a very different path. Most importantly, it is tokenless, or you could say it, uh, cryptoless. 
What are the other elements of being crypto-less in kind of the Chinese blockchain? The NFT is a good example of this crypto-less thing because NFT means non-fungible tokens, <laughs> right? So, so when, when the NFT term includes the reference to token and then the NFT trading market sees exponential growth of volume, it is hard to imagine that NFTs can develop in China without being associated with cryptocurrency and the related regulations. That's why NFTs are called digital collectible in China mm -hmm. to downplay the uh, token aspect, the currency aspect. And also, as you mentioned, the regulations limit the secondhand trading of NFTs. One of the things I'm always struck by is how in China and on Chinese apps and the Chinese app ecosystem, those are often all things you can do in like one single app. Right. Like right. There, there's no need to Super have. App. Exactly. It's, you know, mm. here in New York, I might have a, a DoorDash, an Amazon, an Uber. Whereas in if I'm in Beijing, I've got like one app. <laughs> I can do all of those things at the same time. Are you seeing a similar trend with, you know, metaverse, blockchain, digital collectibles being rolled into those big super apps? I totally think so. In China, it's a very natural development. You mm -hmm. could say it's like a super app going next level, mm -hmm. right? Because as you said, in, in the early years of the mobile economy, uh, Chinese companies uh, were already focusing on building up super apps, hoping that they can keep as many users in their ecosystem for as much time as possible, right? So when you look at uh, uh, Alibaba's e-commerce app, essentially it's a combination of almost like uh, 100 small apps. So the concept is, you know, you can do everything in one app. One kind of as a closing, maybe super existential question, you know, in, in places like the US, in Europe, one of the big propositions of blockchain is this resistance to government surveillance. How is that shaping how people are thinking about the utility of the blockchain in China? I think for, for users, uh, the data privacy is truly a, a important issue and, and it becomes even more urgent as we move into the metaverse. So for users, they have to deal with the privacy issues uh, with the big tech platforms as well as the digital infrastructure support, uh, suppliers. In China, because of the uh, uh, crypto regulations, the government does not support public blockchains. So for NFT plays, for gaming assets plays, right, they have to be executed blockchains that are regulated by the government. And now in the in the US, right, the users can use the public blockchains, which tends to be less centralized, mm -hmm. even though, you know, maybe blockchain uh, of the Bitcoin is the only blockchain that's truly decentralized. However, we could say in general, the public blockchains are more decentralized. Yeah, But, but still, you know, you have... Uh, uh, other data privacy issues as well. For example, you know, all, all the data uh, are still held in three to four major cloud <laughs> cloud platforms mm -hmm. like, the, like the, the Amazon, Google, uh, Microsoft, those guys, right? So, so you see, uh, it, it's a multi-layer issues. And I, th I think for the individual users, not only they are for their data privacy, you know, not only they're looking for public blockchains, but also a more comprehensive data pri privacy solutions relating to uh, uh, data storage and management. 
Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I feel like I have certainly learned a lot and I hope our listeners have as well. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much. That was Winston Ma of Cloudtree Ventures. On the next episode of Bloomberg Crypto, we're going to talk about exchange-traded funds and specifically crypto ETFs. There's some interesting and perhaps unhelpful stuff that's happening with their performance these days, and you'll hear more about that on the next episode. This is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments, questions, or suggestions for the show to crypto at Bloomberg.net. Or find us on Twitter, we're at Crypto. The supervising producer of Bloomberg Crypto is Vicky Vergolina. Our senior producer is Janet Babin. Our producer is Sharon Barrero. Associate producer is Ty Butler. Desta Wonderad is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidron. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael. Have a great weekend. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.